Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and this is episode number six, which is all about special education. Probably the toughest moment for a parent after the diagnosis is facing the fact that our child is going to need special education. We all have ideas from our own time in school about what special education might involve, although in many cases our ideas can oftentimes prove to be complete misconceptions. So the problem is, where can we get good advice or assistance when facing the task of getting educational help for our special needs children? Do we have to see a lawyer? Can we just expect the school to handle it properly? What are the guidelines? What's an IEP? What's a 504? And what kind of educational help can we even reasonably expect our children to have in the first place? Well, joining us today is someone who can answer a lot of those questions. Kathy Holkabor is a special education advocate who works with families right here in West Michigan. Her job, as she defines it, is to educate parents of special needs children on what they need to know to make sure their children are getting the special education help they need. I started the conversation by asking Kathy how she decided to work in special education advocacy. And as is the case with so many people, she does it for a very personal reason. Well, I decided to be an advocate because of my daughter. Um, she was placed in special ed in second grade. Um, she, just so everybody knows now, she is 18 and um, doing a fifth year senior. Um, so I've got a lot of years of experience um, advocating for my daughter. Um, I had to fight for services um, because I, they kept trying to tell me that she wasn't um, that I was looking at things in the wrong way, I guess, um, that she wasn't socially and emotionally she was developing, you know, and but not looking at the academic piece. And I'm like, I can provide social-emotional growth for her in many ways. This is school. You are supposed to be providing academics. Through elementary, it was a f- constant fight. I was labeled the crazy mom, but I still kept advocating, kept teaching myself how to advocate for her, kept reaching out to places, and I found it was really hard to find anyone to help me. So I decided to teach myself how to advocate. And so that was my mission. By the time she was in sixth grade, I finally had her in the appropriate programming. She was starting to progress in the right direction, Um, had a correct diagnosis, which was a big help too. And then I just kind of kept going from there. And by the time she was in eighth grade, I was um, actually working as a paid advocate for a state organization that is no longer in business, but um, that I was able to teach myself how to do, become an advocate and then be able to work to that level. Um, and since once that organization closed, um, I continued to keep advocating because this became a very strong passion for me. I love helping families to navigate the system. Right, yeah. So um, I guess what I would like to know and what probably a lot of people need to know, of course, is how exactly the special education system works. You know, we hear terms like IEP and 504, and of course, if you're just starting out, like many uh, parents are, you don't know exactly what that means, and what are the differences between those two programs? Well, the the main difference between them is um, an IEP falls under IDEA 2004, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act of 2004, Mm -hmm. and that is paid for under special education dollars. Hmm. So that's a whole separate federal program. Section 504, or as people usually just call it, is a 504 plan, but Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 
actually falls under general education. Oh. And that's where those dollars come from to cover that. The diff- that's the main difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Both of them are there to help provide actually the exact same supports for children in school. The districts really struggle with 504 because it comes out of their general education funds. Mm-hmm. So they will te- a lot of times they tell families that they, oh, well, you can't have that under a 504. That is not true. Oh. If the child needs the support, it could be OT, PT, transportation, anything of that. They still are allowed to have that under Section 504. Is there a, an advantage to one over the other? Um, not really. You know, I, I don't know that there is. Um, I guess it, I, I think sometimes it's more of a parent preference. Do you want your child in special ed or do you not want your child in special ed? But most of the time, kids who really need special education services will get um, an IEP because they qualify. That's what they qualify for under the evaluation process. Right, and I'm sure most of the school districts would rather have that money uh, come from a different source rather than from their own budget. Right, and it makes more sense. If, if, if your child qualifies, if, say your child um, is cognitively impaired, needs to be in a CI program, then you need to, it's better to come from the, to have them in special ed because then the district is getting those dollars and they are able to collect those dollars that way, which help, it really does help the district. We all know that they're, they are in financial struggles. So I guess I look at it from, I try to look at it from both sides. I am not opposed to um, seeing that my child is in special education. Um, I don't. I don't think that that's a bad label. I think that, it, and so it's it's really a parent decision. Some parents just don't want that label of special ed on their child because it carries with them. Right. Because there's unfortunately there's still that perceived stigma out there. Very much so. Yeah. Even though I think a lot of that is actually not as bad as it used to be. I, yeah, I I would agree. I think it's getting better. I think people are becoming um, more knowledgeable and understanding and respectful of differences than what there were even 10 years ago. Yeah, I agree, too. Well, I know that uh, for many parents, of course, the idea of getting their child into special education is nerve-wracking, and usually they're just grateful to get any help at all. But even with the national and state standards in place, not every school district or individual school is prepared to utilize the full range of services that's available. So how can an advocate like uh, you help parents through this process? In other words, you know, what, what exactly does the advocate do? Well, as an advocate, my main job, if I'm doing this is how I view an advocate, I should say. Mm-hmm. My main job is to help coach and train parents how to become the best advocate for their child. Being an advocate for your child with special needs is going to be a lifelong job. Just when they get done with school, you are still going to be advocating. It's going to probably, it could be with Social Security. It could be with, um, you know, re- your local rehabilitation services, CMH, um, getting them support that way. So this, my, I feel my job when I start with a family is to start teaching them how do you advocate for your child because this is lifelong. You know, and hopefully if I do my job well, they don't come back, they don't have to call me to hire me to come back and work for them. They just call me to ask me a quick question to make sure they're on the right track. I don't, honestly, I don't want repeat business. I want people to be able to go out there and do the best they can for their family or for their children. Um, As an advocate, though, when I go into meetings, um, my job is just to be there to support the family, to help um, navigate the system if the parents have difficulties. 
I also do a lot of work with asking the clarifying question. As the parents are sitting there, if I'm kind of, because I, I, I like to watch the team and watch the families and see how people are responding. And if I can see that somebody's got a look on their face that maybe is questioning what is going on, I will then, if, if they have that look and I'm thinking the same thing, I will stop and ask, start asking the clarifying questions to really understand because that seems to be the biggest challenge at meetings is the communication piece. Right. And parents go in with the emotional component. I mean, because that's who we are. We're parents. We are going to, we're fighting for our children. That emotion is right there on our sleeve. As an advocate, I can go in and be a non-biased party to really look at the situation and ask clarifying questions and really delve into asking why, why is it the school isn't able to provide this? What is the reason behind it? and try and dig further into it, if need be. And a lot of times parents really don't know what their rights are. Exactly. And that's what I try to, that's the other part of my job, is to teach them what what do they, what are their rights, what as a parent, to request for their child. And it can't, you know, and I try to make sure parents realize that they aren't able to just ask for the moon, just because it's available. Is what you're asking for truly going to benefit your child is really my objective because down the road you may really need something for your child, but you've already asked for the moon and gotten it all, and they may look at this and be like, "Um, sorry, this is not realistic. Now, some people might think that because it's legal that they might need to hire an attorney like a disability rights attorney. Is there a big difference between an attorney and having an advocate? The biggest thing, honestly, is price. Ah. Um, to hire an attorney, it's going to be really costly. Um, advocates, um, you know, every advocate has their own charges, their own thing. There's not like, just like an attorney, they all have their own fees. That really is the biggest piece of it. I actually um, not long ago had an attorney refer somebody to me because he, um, he flat out said, the price that you're going to pay for me to come in here versus having um, an advocate come in um, is substantially different. And, you know, and I appreciated that because that helps, you know, to show that advocates are capable of doing this type, this type of work just as capable as an attorney is. Um, you just want to make sure that when you find an advocate that you find somebody who is um, really knows it, who's walked, who's walked the walk and understands the challenges of being a parent with a child with special needs. That's my biggest thing with regards to being working with an advocate that that I've learned over the years myself before I became an advocate. The law is very clear within things. There's a lot of good books that are out there. Any parent could t- make this, if they want to take the time, can teach themselves like I did how to advocate for your child. It's just about learning the laws and taking the time to educate yourself. Oh, okay. Is there any kind of a, like a certification or something like that through the state for advocacy? Nope, there's none. Oh. Okay, so it is kind of you really do want to make sure you get the right person who has the right. Yeah, you do. You want to get somebody who really has who's who's got a lot of years of experience behind them and and knowledge. They that will provide with a much better services and also you want to look at too what is their style. I do know that there's advocates who come in. I kind of refer to them as the bull the bull in the china shop. Mm-hmm. They kind of they come into the meeting and they just try to take control of everything and get things resolved and kind of attack 
my my personal style is is I like to sit back and listen, mm-hmm. trying to absorb and really understand what is going on. Because one, I'm new walking into this meeting. I've heard the parents usually hear the parents perception of the situation and and hopefully have talked to the school and have a bit of their perception but when you come in and you sit at the table that's where you can really see what where the perceptions lie and where some of the conflict is if you sit and listen and that's what i um really try to do is listen and then come forward with um my questions and in order for parents to understand uh, better how this whole process comes together, what are some of the common misconceptions that people have when it comes to formulating an IEP or a 504 plan with their schools? Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of a big question. The biggest thing I would say with regards to an IEP would be that because your child has a medical diagnosis, that they should automatically qualify for an IEP. Mm-hmm. And I guess I say this, and I lean this more towards um, the autism spectrum, because there's a lot of confusion with uh, the criteria used within the school to um, give a child the autism label, like, for lack of a better term right now, um, versus using if the doctor, if they have a doctor's um, diagnosis of autism. They have to, the, if you lay the criteria out next to each other from the DSM, and the school criteria, they don't match. And that's, that's a struggle for parents. Right. Because they know that their child really needs need those supports and services, but they're not able to get them through an IEP because they say they don't qualify. At that point, though, that still does not mean that they don't qualify for a 504 plan. And just because they get, if you can get them on a 504, they can still receive those same services that they need. It would just be under general education dollars versus special education dollars at that point. I see. Yeah, and I know that uh, I've had this happen before where people... uh Medical people have uh, taken a look at some of the uh, forms that they're supposed to fill out for the state or education, and I've had at least a couple of different doctors say to me, where did they get these standards? Because we don't use them. Right, and that is, it's a real challenge because medical doctors don't understand it either. Mm -hmm. So then, because the doctors will a lot of times tell the families, well, okay, with this diagnosis, you really should be getting special education services. And that can be from, and the other big one would be ADHD. Right. Um, so, but because, just because they have those diagnoses does not mean that they qualify for special education services. And that really is probably the biggest struggle for parents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I remember I had one doctor specifically say, you know, these standards are from 30 years ago that the state is using. <laughs> we don't use that anymore. <laughs> so it depends, I guess, upon how often they change their standards or upgrade. Yeah, and I know that the standards have not been changed um, within, like, the autism area, and a lot of them haven't really been changed much over at least the last 10 years, um, 10 to 12 years while I've been doing this. Right. So, unfortunately, they don't always keep up with the current uh, information that's out there. No, but they. But the thing is, though, the school doesn't have to look, or, you know, I guess the law has set up so they don't have to... Um, necessarily take a, a medical diagnosis because even if your child got a diagnosis and you brought it to the table and you have medical information that's only if the law states it only needs to be reviewed it does not have to be the diagnostic information used 
to make a d- decision for um, supports in school, whether it be for an IEP. For 504, it's different. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because if your child has a diagnosis and needs supports in school, mm-hmm. um, Section 504 is there to is is that support because that actually falls under um, Americans with Disabilities Act. Ah, that's interesting. So that's uh, that is definitely an area where an advocate would uh, be of a great help in order to to solve those problems. Well, and hopefully, an av- the advocate that you work with understands um, and has information regarding Section 504. Um, unfortunately, Section 504 is, I personally feel, is underutilized and sometimes not followed as well as it should be. That's a, that's very interesting and very enlightening. Um, some parents sometimes can worry that, you know, using the services of an advocate that they might be setting up a hostile situation with their school's administration or that their child might be targeted or made an example of for some reason. Now, is there any truth to that possibility? Um, unfortunately, there is. Oh. But... I would hope that this day and age you don't see that, but I do still hear stories of it. Um, I was just online reading something that happened just in the last five years regarding that. Um, really what that falls under is retaliation. Right. And uh, retaliation is a civil rights violation. Ah. Now, in order, though, to do that, you're going to have to really have proof. Yeah. Um, whether that be in writing, um, you know, or you can show that they aren't, you know, it, it's not always easy to prove. There can be, because there are, there's mild retaliation. I know that I've experienced it. I didn't know at the time that I was experiencing it with my daughter in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, again, that's hindsight. You look back and you're like, oh, yeah, they were retaliating against me. Right. Um, but unfortunately, the reality is it can happen. It can be very subtle. Um, hopefully, though, it does not occur. Bringing an advocate to the table. It's a parent's right. By law, they are allowed to bring anybody to the table that they feel um, will help provide information to support their child. Mm-hmm. So by law, they have the right to bring an advocate. So the district should be respectful of that. And hopefully, um, if the advocate is respectful and treat, it isn't trying to... Um, doesn't come in and make it a, a tenuous situation and tries to be um, ne- negotiate for the family without trying to create a lot of tension between the family and the district is hopefully the best way to prevent retaliation. Right. And obviously when the parents bring an advocate in, it's because they're not getting what they feel is necessary for their child. And so on one hand, you could say the school district is kind of bringing it upon themselves. Exactly, and that's, I try to tell parents to, one, make sure they always tell the school if they're bringing an advocate with, because you don't want somebody to show up as a surprise to the table no more than they do. The other thing is, if they say, well, why are you bringing an advocate? Well, that's your opportunity to bring it, to bring to light what is really going on um, and your concerns and say, I don't feel heard. I feel like I need some more support. Um, I'm not understanding this. Whatever it may be, and so then at least that way they understand. They may not like it, but at least they understand and know why you're bringing an advocate. Right. So you try to diffuse the situation before it happens. Right. You just want to be open and and honest with them. And I always encourage parents to do that because honesty is the only way, and honesty and open communication is the only way you're going to have a positive working relationship. Right. 
How often should a parent expect to meet with school officials during the school year to track the progress of their IEP or 504? Well, typically you get in your IEP, it should state that at, um, usually I get, I know for my daughter, I get have it in her IEP that at every report card, I get an update on her progress. Mm-hmm. And so you just get that written report. Um, if you feel like you need more than that, I would um, set it up with the teacher to maybe do a phone conference. You don't have to always have face-to-face meetings. Right. Um, and I and I would discourage having a lot of face-to-face meetings like that because um, if you have to bring the team together every time, you're there after a while. It's gonna it's gonna wear on everybody. Right. Um, but I do encourage very much to have open communication. Is it that um, a weekly note comes home? If there's something really that you really feel needs to be reported on a more regular basis. Um, I would say it's a case-by-case, and you really want to look at um, respecting everybody's time and even your own. Mm-hmm. Um, now once an IEP or a 504 plan is signed off on and put in place, can parents ask to have them modified at other times during the semester or school year in order to accommodate new findings or diagnosis, or do they have to wait until the next annual meeting? You can have a meeting. Um, I would suggest, though, if you've got a new diagnosis, Talking to um, even the psychologist or the social worker to see, okay, realistically, do if we is this new diagno- diagnosis going to change placement? Is it going to um, affect the child's IEP in any way? If if the answer to that is no, I would honestly say at that point um, hold off until the next IEP, just because. I, my philosophy is is I'm going to make sure to I want to hold that I want them to know that when I ask for an IEP that there's really a reason for an IEP. I'm not calling it just because I want to call an IEP and and address every little issue. There could be times that you get you know maybe a diagnosis is added um, and it it really isn't going to change anything. But you do want to eventually get that put into that IEP because more the more information the next teacher has or the next school district has, um, the better it is to have documented for your child. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking, because in many cases, uh, kids will already be in school at just getting general uh, special ed help, and then finally the parents later get a real, more, much more accurate diagnosis, you know, depending upon what they have or their degree of severity. Well, and you can even have what's called a teaming, a team planning meeting, or just call a meeting just not to that it's not an official IEP meeting to discuss the new diagnosis and how is this going to affect and decide as a team ah. without holding a full IEP. And during that meeting, it might be decided, oh, yeah, this is great information. This is really going to help us. We, we need to use this to build on goals. You can do one of two things. You could do an addendum right there and add it to, and then make um, add goals or things into the IEP or you can say at that point the team may say, okay, with this new information, we really this is what we need to do, and then start maybe doing do some further additional testing. Um, it could be a variety of things. It's really case by case, but I would say if nothing else, if you feel that as a parent, because the parent is the expert no matter what, it doesn't matter how many degrees all these professionals on um, the team have, the parent bottom line is the expert of their child. If you feel that that diagnosis is going to make a, a difference in how your child learns and how it, and it affects their ability in, in their day-to-day at school, 
then I would definitely call a team meeting to, to just discuss it and evaluate, make a decision as to do we address it now or can it wait till the next IEP meeting. That sounds like a great piece of advice. Another one I have for you is sometimes the goals of the IEP or the 504, while helpful sounding in tone, can wind up being deliberately vague. So how specific can parents expect these goals to be? You know, for example, should there be dates of expectation for grade points or certain improvements set with the goals? Goals goals need to be clear and concise. There needs to be a way to collect data to show that the child is making progress. Mm-hmm. Because with everything within special education is, is data-driven. So with regards to an IEP, those goals need to be, there needs to be a way that shows the frequency of the collection of data and how they're collecting the data. And at what point is the goal considered successful? And, you know, the one thing I always tell families, too, don't ever expect 100% because you and I can't do 100% of everything all the time. So never expect that your child should have be reaching 100%. Um, you know, if they say four out of five or three out of five and they consider that to be successful, then you know what, realistically it probably is. Right. Because, you know, you're, then you're talking at 80 or 90%. And that's about average for anyone anyway. Exactly. Because it's impossible. Nobody's perfect. And with a 504 plan, um, you know, the the same thing should be done there. The goals within a 504 plan, though, are usually, um, they don't don't write goals like you do in an IEP. Ah, okay. Um, A lot of that, a lot of the 504 is more of the accommodations. But, too, you want to track and see, are the accommodations actually providing the support that that child needs? So you do want to look at how are you going to track that to show that these supports are one, that they're needed, and two, that they're doing what they should be doing, or is it that the 504 team needs to come back together and review these accommodations and adjust them to better match the student? And uh, a little follow-up on that, too. Should there be specific instructions about what happens if the goals are not being met within the targeted time? Well, there really isn't specific instructions. I guess at that point, my question would be is, if the goals aren't being met, why? Are the parents, you know, the parents need to be asking this question. Is it, there's a few questions I thought of with regards to that. And is it that the goal is not being addressed by the staff? I mean, do they not have the tools needed to meet that goal? Um, Is it the student isn't actually ready to meet that goal because the goals are written for a year? So maybe that goal, they have to build on goal one and two before they hit three. And if they still, and so you just, you have to really look at it and ask questions and ask the staff the question. Right. What, what, what specific reason is this goal not being met or addressed? And take it from there because, it's, again, it's that conversation. You really need to have that with the staff to understand. Now, different states have different standards as far as special education programs in the public school systems. And, of course, we're here in Michigan, and you primarily deal with Michigan law. Are there any websites that you could recommend for parents to get good information about IEP and 504 programs in other states and other school districts around the country? Yeah, one of the things I would recommend is the PACER site. Um, You can find every state, by law, has to have a parent trainer center. And the PACER site is, PACER is, like the national website, it's the uh, Pacer Center Assistance with, or excuse me, Assistance for Family. I'm reading this wrong. I apologize. Pacer Center Assistance for Children with Disabilities, and it's pacer.org. Okay, is that P-A-C-E-R? Yes. Okay, pacer.org. Correct. Okay. And um, uh, this website, you should be able to access. Yep, 
the National Parent Center Network. And in there, you can get technical assistance. You should also be able to um, find out within your region um, who, what, who the Parent Trainer Center for the state is, and that would be a starting point to get, um, be able to find information regarding your own state. Okay, and then there's a, are there any um, links to advocates in the area or any information about uh, how you can find an advocate if you think you need one? Well, the state pro every state has um, the program with Lake Michigan's is Michigan Alliance for Families, and they are supposed to have advocates available to talk to the parents, and it, this that is actually a free service. That's always a good one. Yep, and they uh, actually so yeah, you can find that nationally. But I will tell you the one if you want to learn yourself how to advocate and to become you know, educate yourself, which I found work, that worked really well for me because I'm a reader. I like to research and understand and learn things. I actually use um, the rightslaw.com. Oh, okay. And it's W-R-I-G-H-T-S-L-A-W.com. And when I was doing this, I, I found a book. They have several books that they've written, um, but the best book I ever read was called um, by, it's by Peter, Peter Wright, who is actually a special ed attorney. This website is run by attorneys. And it's, they really cover the national law piece, but you're able to apply it to your local level because that's what the laws the state level, the states need to follow. Unless their law is better, like the example for that would be Michigan. The federal law says that special education services are to age 21. Michigan law says we re, our, our children can receive special education through age 26. Because our law supersedes Federal law, Michigan law then stands oh. because it's better than what the federal law is. And that's really the only one in Michigan that I can think of off the top of my head that supersedes any of the federal laws. But um, the book, though, I'm going to go back to that, sorry. The book was is called From Emotions to Advocacy. That sounds exactly like what we've been talking about. It is. And honestly, that I still use that book now, 12 years later. That, that book, I have a couple copies, and I've loaned out, I've given out copies, I've bought new ones, um, because it's just been, that book did it all for me. It, it answered my question. It, it taught me how to understand um, the test scores. I mean, those test scores that they provide you, you're like, well, I don't know what this means. Okay. And they explain it to you. But when you're sitting at the table trying to understand and process everything they're throwing at you, you then sit there and you walk away and you, you digest it and you remember about a third of what they've said. So this book helps you to understand, you know, we are emotional as parents. I know when, when I go to my daughter's IEP, I, I can be mama bear because I am going to protect my girl. But this helped me to understand that I need to check those emotions at the door and I honestly, I've come to the point now where I try to, and I don't mean this in a cold way, but I look at this as a business transaction. My daughter is my bottom line. And so when I, and this book really helped me be able to reach that level. And it just, it, it taught me a lot. That's fantastic. Sounds like we're probably going to sell a few copies for them too. <laughs> okay. Um, then I guess uh, one other question for you I have right now is uh, you're based here, of course, in West Michigan, and you look, work with the local school districts around the area. How can parents who live in this area contact you? Well, right now I have, um, really, I just have a page on Facebook. Oh, okay. Since I'm in grad school, I've been kind of just dabbling with this and still keeping my fingers in the special ed realm. 
But I eventually here in the next month or so, as I'm winding down school, will be starting my uh, web page. But right now I can be reached on Facebook at Hulkabore. It's just my page is Hulkabore Advocacy, and it's open to the public, so anybody should be able to find me. And then um, the other way would be um, my cell phone. Okay, and rather than uh, expect everyone to be able to write that all down right now, I will put a link to your Facebook page as well as your cell phone number on this particular podcast episode's page on specialparentsconfidential.com. And, of course, I will also link your website as soon as you have it up and running. Yeah, that sounds great. I appreciate that. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Kathy. It's a lot of great information here, and I think a lot of parents uh, have some uh, good resources through this uh, that they can go out and uh, get the right answers for themselves. Well, I hope so. I hope that the, I hope people can take this and learn um, how to advocate for themselves, because I feel that this is, it is it's a lifelong job. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. We certainly do. I want to thank my guest for this podcast, Kathy Holkabor, who is a special education advocate for families here in West Michigan. And again, all of the links to the websites that Kathy talked about and her contact information can be found on the page for this podcast, episode number six at specialparentsconfidential.com. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.